and to preserve and defend the King's Majesty's person and authority in the preservation and defense of the true religion and liberties of the kingdoms, that the world may bear witness with our consciences of our loyalty, and that we have no other thoughts or intentions to diminish His Majesty's just power and greatness. Article 4 We shall also with all faithfulness endeavor the discovery of all such as have been or shall be incendiaries, malignants, or evil instruments, be hindering the reformation of religion, dividing the king from his people, or one of the kingdoms from another, or making any faction or parties among the people contrary to this league and covenant, that they may be brought to public trial and receive condign punishment as the degree of their offenses shall require or deserve or the supreme judicatories of both kingdoms respectively, or others having power from them for that effect, shall judge convenient. Article 5. And whereas the happiness of a blessed peace between these kingdoms denied in former times to our progenitors is by the good providence of God granted unto us and hath been lately concluded and settled by both parliaments, we shall, each one of us, according to our place and interest, endeavor that they may remain conjoined in a firm peace and union to all posterity, and that justice may be done upon the willful opposers thereof, in manner expressed in the precedent article. Article 6 We shall also, according to our places and callings, in this common cause of religion, liberty, and peace of the kingdoms, assist and defend all those that enter into this league and covenant, in the maintaining and pursuing thereof, and shall not suffer ourselves, directly or indirectly, by whatsoever combination, persuasion, or terror, to be divided or withdrawn from this blessed union and conjunction, whether to make defection to the contrary part or to give ourselves to a detestable indifferency or neutrality in this cause, which so much concerneth the glory of God, the good of the kingdom, and honor of the king, but shall all the days of our lives zealously and constantly continue therein against all opposition and promote the same according to our power against all lets and impediments whatsoever. And what we are not able ourselves to suppress or overcome, we shall reveal and make known that it may be timely prevented or removed, all which we shall do as in the sight of God. And because these kingdoms are guilty of many sins and provocations against God and His Son Jesus Christ, as is too manifest by our present distresses and dangers, the fruits thereof, we profess and declare before God and the world our unfeigned desire to be humbled for our own sins and for the sins of these kingdoms, especially that we have not, as we ought, valued the inestimable benefit of the gospel, that we have not labored for the purity and power thereof, and that we have not endeavored to receive Christ in our hearts, not to walk worthy of him in our lives, which are the causes of other sins and transgressions so much abounding among us. And our true and unfeigned purpose, desire, and endeavor for ourselves and all others under our power and charge, both in public and private, in all duties we owe to God and man to amend our lives and each one to go before another in the example of a real reformation that the Lord may turn away his wrath in heavy indignation and establish these churches and kingdoms in truth and peace. And this covenant we make in the presence of Almighty God, the searcher of all hearts, with a true intention to perform the same, 
as we shall answer at that great day when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, most humbly beseeching the Lord to strengthen us by his Holy Spirit for this end, and to bless our desires and proceedings with such success as may be deliverance and safety to his people, an encouragement to other Christian churches groaning under or in danger of the yoke of anti-Christian tyranny, to join in the same or like association and covenant to the glory of God, the enlargement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and the peace and tranquility of Christian kingdoms and commonwealths. End quote. Following are the terms of communion adopted by the Puritan Reformed Church of Edmonton. Terms of Ministerial and Christian Communion in the Reformed Presbyterian Church Term number one, an acknowledgement of the Old and New Testament to be the Word of God and the alone infallible rule of faith and practice. Term number two, that the whole doctrine of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms, larger and shorter, are agreeable unto and founded upon the Scriptures. Term number three, that the Presbyterial Church government and manner of worship are alone of divine right and unalterable, and that the most perfect model of these as yet attained is exhibited in the form of government and directory for worship adopted by the Church of Scotland in the Second Reformation. Term number four, that public social covenanting is an ordinance of God, obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person, and in con- consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas, 1712, was agreeable to the Word of God. Term number five, an approbation of the faithful contendings of the martyrs of Jesus especially in Scotland against paganism, popery, prelacy, malignancy, and sectarianism, immoral civil governments, Erastian tolerations and persecutions which flow from them, and of the judicial testimony emitted by the Reformed Presbytery in North Britain, 1761, and adopted by this church with supplements, as containing a noble example to be followed, in contending for all divine truth and in testifying against all corruptions embodied in the constitutions of either churches or states. Term number six, practically adorning the doctrine of God our Savior by walking in all his commandments and ordinances blamelessly. Following is an article written by Reg Barrow in 1991. Worship, the regulative principle of worship in history. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 21, Paragraph 1. What things soever I command you, observe to do it. Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. Deuteronomy 12, 32. 
but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Matthew 15, verse 9. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. It was an amazing discovery to read for the first time of the regulative principle of worship about a year ago. Footnote. Fred DeLella, while visiting Edmonton, had lent me his copy of The Scriptural Law of Worship by Carl Bogue, Presbyterian Heritage Publications, 1988, which I eagerly devoured, my journey towards the Presbyterian Puritan view of worship having finally begun. End footnote. This was over ten years after my eyes had been opened to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and also after having spent a number of years in a Bible Presbyterian church, in which I never even once heard this great controlling principle mentioned. Footnote. I later found out that some of the elders at that Bible Presbyterian church had never heard of the regulative principle either. End footnote. Sadly, this was also after a number of debates had taken place in this church over music and liturgy, all of which could have easily been settled by an appeal to the confessional standards that the the BP elders had vowed to uphold, i.e. the Westminster Confession of Faith. The sufficiency of the WCF in this area can be easily illustrated, especially concerning the use of instrumental music in public worship by a quotation from pages 31 to 32 of James Begg's book, Anarchy in Worship. Footnote. As this book, first published in 1875, is not easily accessible, Stillwater's Revival Books is stocking copies which can be obtained by sending $5. End footnote. When we come down to the Westminster Assembly by which our present standards were framed, it is unnecessary to repeat how clearly these standards embody the same principle, that is, that pure and acceptable worship must be prescribed or appointed by God himself. But it may be important to bring out the clear evidence which we have that during the Second Reformation our ancestors insisted on uniformity of worship and the commissioners at Westminster and the Assembly in Scotland regarded their principle of worship as clearly excluding instrumental music and all other things abolished along with the peculiarities of the temple service. By an act of the Assembly of Scotland, 1643, a directory for worship was appointed to be prepared and reported to next assembly to the intent that unity and uniformity might be observed throughout the kingdom in all parts of the public worship of God. Our commissioners to the Westminster Assembly, including the most eminent ecclesiastics then in Scotland reported on May 20, 1644 that plain and powerful preaching had been set up and the great organs at St. Paul's and Peter's in Westminster taken down and all by authority in a quiet manner at noonday without tumult. In answer, the General Assembly here, June 4, 1644 writes to the Assembly at Westminster Quote, We were greatly refreshed to hear by letter 
from our commissioners there with you, of your praiseworthy proceedings, and of the great good things the Lord hath wrought among you and for you. Shall it seem a small thing in our eyes that the door of a right entry unto faithful shepherds is opened? Many corruptions as altars, images, and other monuments of idolatry and superstition removed, defaced, and abolished. The service book in many places forsaken, and plain and powerful preaching set up. The great organs at St. Paul's and Peter's taken down. That the royal chapel is purged and reformed, sacraments sincerely administered, and according to the pattern in the mount. End quote. From this it is clear that the Westminster Divines and our own church in these days, in those days, would have made short work with the Duns case and with all questions of instrumental music in worship. This was certainly regarded as one of the last corruptions introduced dating only from about the 8th century and never having found admission into the Greek church at all. At this point some may be asking, what is this regulative principle? James Glasgow gives us a succinct answer. That principle was substantially this, that for all the constituents of worship you require the positive sanction of divine authority, either in the shape of direct command or good and necessary consequence or approved example, and that you are not at liberty to introduce anything else in connection with the worship of God unless it comes legitimately under the apostolic heading of decency and order. Footnote From Heart and Voice Instrumental Music in Christian Worship Not Divinely Authorized Belfast, Aitchison and Cleland, Late 19th Century, Page 4 This exceedingly rare book can also be obtained in bound photocopy format from Stillwater's Revival Books. This book is an exegetical treasure which demolishes what the Westminster Divines, together with the whole Puritan party, called the Badge of Popery, i.e. the innovation of introducing instrumental music into Christian worship. End footnote. After citing the instance of Begg's quote concerning the Westminster Assembly, Glasgow further illustrates this principle. They, the Westminster Divines, contended, I think unanswerably, that the truth of this principle is involved in what the Scripture teaches concerning its own sufficiency, God's exclusive right to settle the constitution, laws, and arrangements of his kingdom, the unlawfulness of will worship, and the utter unfitness of men for the function which they have so often boldly usurped in this matter. Of course, whole volumes have been written regarding this definition, but continuing on, in that this definition has been generally accepted among Presbyterian Puritan Christians, Cunningham sets the stage for more of our historical survey, while at the same time excluding the charge of trifling over inconsequential matters, when he writes, There is a strange fallacy which seems to mislead men in forming an estimate of the soundness and importance of this principle, the regulative principle. Because this principle has been often brought out in connection with the discussion of matters which, viewed in themselves, are very unimportant, such as rites and ceremonies, vestments and organs, crossings, kneelings, bowings, and other such inepti, some men seem to think that it partakes of the intrinsic littleness of these things and that the men who defend and try to enforce it find their most congenial occupation in fighting about these small matters and exhibit great bigotry and narrow-mindedness in bringing the authority of God 
and the testimony of Scripture to bear upon such a number of paltry points. Many have been led to entertain such views as these of the English Puritans and of the Scottish Presbyterians, and very much upon the ground of their maintenance of this principle. Now it should be quite sufficient to prevent or neutralize this impression to show, as we think can be done, first, that the principle is taught with sufficient plainness in Scripture, and that therefore it ought to be professed and applied to the regulation of ecclesiastical affairs. Second, that viewed in itself it is large, liberal, and comprehensive, such as seems in no way unbecoming its divine author, and in no way unsuitable to the dignity of the Church as a divine institution, giving to God his rightful place of supremacy, and to the Church as the body of Christ its rightful position of elevated simplicity and purity. Third, that when contemplated in connection with the ends of the Church, it is in full accordance with everything suggested by an enlightened and searching survey of the tendencies of human nature and the testimony of all past experience, and with respect to the connection above referred to, on which the impression we are combating is chiefly based, it is surely plain that insofar as it exists de facto, this is owing not to anything in the tendencies of the principle itself or of its supporters, but to the conduct of the men who, in defiance of this principle, would obtrude human inventions into the government and worship of the Church, or who insist upon retaining them permanently after they have once got admittance. The principle suggests no rites or ceremonies, no schemes or arrangements. It is purely negative and prohibitionary. Its supporters never devise innovations and press them upon the Church. The principle itself precludes this. It It is the deniers of this principle, and they alone, who invent and obtrude innovations and they are responsible for all the mischiefs that ensue from the discussions and contentions to which these things have given rise. Footnote. William Cunningham, The Reformers and the Theology of the Reformation, Edinburgh, Scotland, Banner of Truth, 1862 and 1989, pages 35 and 36. End footnote. Now we can continue to view the historical position that the Christian Church has taken regarding the regulative principle with special emphasis on instrumental music. Concerning the early Church, Dr. N. R. Needham has written, The early Church did not use instrumental music in its worship. They considered the practice as pagan or Jewish rather than Christian. Dr. Hughes Oliphant Old, in his work The Patristic Roots of Reformed Worship, says, Quote, As is well known, the ancient church did not admit the use of instrumental music in worship. It was looked upon as a form of worship which, like the sacrifices of the Jerusalem temple, prefigured the worship in spirit and truth. This concern for the distinctiveness of New Testament worship and for spirituality as its central feature was typical of the early church fathers. In harmony with this, the situation in early church worship was one of plain or unaccompanied singing of psalms. The use of musical instruments was rejected as contrary to the tradition of the apostles, a feature of sensuous pagan or Old Testament Jewish worship, but not of the spiritual Christian worship. Footnote. Musical Instruments in Worship, Historical Survey, The Presbyterian, Issue 32, May 1990, pages 25 and 26. Available from 9 Church Road, Thornbury, Bristol, BS12, 
I.E.J. England. End footnote. Continuing our walk through history and the instrument music example, we can observe how and by whom this principle has been greatly violated. With reference to the time when organs were first introduced into use in the Roman Catholic Church, let us hear Bingham. It is now generally agreed among learned men that the use of organs came into the Church since the time of Thomas Aquinas, Anno 1250, for he, in his sums, has these words, Our Church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God withal, that she may not seem to Judaize. Mr. Wharton also has observed that Marinus Sanutus, who lived about the year 1290, was the first who brought the use of wind organs into churches, whence he was surnamed Torcellus, which is the name for an organ in the, in the Italian tongue. Let us pause a moment to notice the fact, supported by a mass of incontrovertible evidence, that the Christian Church did not employ instrumental music in its public worship for 1,200 years after Christ. It deserves serious consideration, moreover, that notwithstanding the ever-accelerated drift towards corruption in worship, as well as in doctrine and government, the Roman Catholic Church did not adopt this corrupt practice until about the middle of the 13th century. When the organ was introduced into its worship, it encountered strong opposition and made its way but slowly to general acceptance. These assuredly are facts that should profoundly impress Protestant churches. How can they adopt a practice which the Roman Church in the year 1200 had not admitted? Then came the Reformation and the question arises, how did the Reformers deal with instrumental music in the Church? Zwingli has already been quoted to show instrumental music was one of the shadows of the old law, which has been realized in the Gospel. He pronounces its employment in the present dispensation wicked pervicacity. There is no doubt in regard to his views on the subject, subject which were adopted by the Swiss Reformed churches. Calvin is very express in his condemnation of instrumental music in, conduct, in connection with the public worship of the Christian church. In his homily on 1 Samuel 18, 1-9, he delivers himself emphatically and solemnly on the subject. Quote, in Popery, there was a ridiculous and unsuitable imitation of the Jews. While they adorned their temples and valued themselves as having made the worship of God more splendid and inviting, they employed organs and many other such ludicrous things, by which the word and worship of God are exceedingly profaned. The people being much more attached to those rites than to the understanding of the divine word. End quote. Whatever may be the practice in recent times of the churches of Holland, the synods of the Reformed Dutch Church, soon after the Reformation, pronounced very decidedly against the use of instrumental music in public worship. The National Synod at Middleburg in 1581 declared against it, and the Synod of Holland and Zealand in 1594 adopted this strong resolution, quote, that they would endeavor to obtain of the magistrate the laying aside of organs and the singing with them in the churches. End quote. The Provincial Synod of Dort also invades severely against their use. The Reverend Charles H. Spurgeon upholds an apostolic simplicity of worship. 
The great congregation which is blessed with the privilege of listening to his instructions has no organ to assist them in singing. The non-prolatic churches, independent and Presbyterian, began their development on the American continent without instrumental music. They followed the English Puritans and the Scottish Church, which had adopted the principles of the Calvinistic Reformed Church. It has thus been proved by an appeal to historical facts that the Church, although lapsing more and more into defection from the truth and into a corruption of apostolic practice, had no instrumental music for 1,200 years and that the Calvinistic Reformed Church ejected it from its services as an element of popery, even the Church of England having come very nigh to its extrusion from her worship. The historical argument, therefore, combines with the scriptural and the confessional to raise a solemn and powerful protest against its employment by the Presbyterian Church. It is heresy in the sphere of worship. Footnote John L. Gerardo Instrumental Music in the Public Worship of the Church Havertown, Pennsylvania, New Covenant Public Publishing Society, 1888 and 1983 Pages 158, 159, 161, 165, 170, 179 Again, this book is available in bound photocopied format from Stillwater's Revival Books End footnote Though our standard is unequivocally sola scriptura, the historical argument illustrates how a practice which was a very late comer to church practice, not to mention instituted by the Pope of Rome, has gained almost universal acceptance in our day of declension. Without strict adherence to the regulative principle, as historically exegeted and espoused by our Presbyterian and Puritan forefathers, the door to unscriptural innovation in worship is endless. This principle in worship is the equivalent of God's sovereignty in soteriology, that is, the Christian humanists, Arminians, try to ascribe salvation to their own wills and not to God's will, as the Bible clearly proclaims, John 1.13, Romans 9. Similarly, the Bible condemns human invention in worship as will-worship, Colossians 2.23, the only acceptable worship being that which is mandated by a God's own will as revealed in the Scripture. Gerardo cites Calvin's commentary on the Psalms pinpointing the error in this particular practice and also exposing the source of many of the ecclesiastical abuses of worship that have crept into the modern church. Quote, to sing the praises of God upon the harp and psaltery, unquote, says Calvin, quote, unquestionably formed a part of the training of the law and of the service of God under that dispensation of shadows and figures, but they are not now to be used in public thanksgiving. End quote. Footnote. Calvin on Psalms 71, verse 22. End footnote. He says again, quote, With respect to the tabret, harp, and psaltery, we have formerly observed, and will find it necessary afterwards to repeat the same remark, that the Levites, under the law, were justified in making use of instrumental music in the worship of God, it having been his will to train his people while they were yet tender and like children by such rudiments until the coming of Christ. But now, when the clear light of the gospel has dissipated the shadows of the law, and taught us that God is to be served in a simpler form, it would be to act a foolish and mistaken part 
to, to imitate that which the Prophet enjoined only upon those of his own time. End quote. Footnote. Calvin on Psalm 81, verse 3. End footnote. He further observes, quote, We are to remember that the worship of God was never understood to consist in such outward services which were only necessary to help forward a people as yet weak and rude in knowledge in the spiritual worship of God. A difference is to be observed in this respect between his people under the Old and under the New Testament. For now that Christ has appeared and the church has reached full age, it were only to bury the light of the gospel should we introduce the shadows of a departed dispensation. From this it appears that the papists, as I shall have occasion to show elsewhere, in employing instrumental music, cannot be said so much to imitate the practice of God's ancient people as to ape it in a senseless and absurd manner, exhibiting a silly delight in that worship of the Old Testament which was figurative and terminated with the gospel. End quote. Footnote. Calvin on Psalm 92, 1. All Calvin cited in Gerardo, Instrumental Music, pages 63 and 64. End footnote. Once again, citing a lengthy section from Gerardo, which ends the first chapter of his Instrumental Music in Public Worship, the general arguments from Scripture, we read, The principle, the regulative principle scripturally proved in the preceding 22 pages of his highly recommended book, that has been emphasized is in direct opposition to that maintained by Romanists and Prelatists, and I regret to say by lax Presbyterians, that what is not forbidden in the Scriptures is permitted. The Church of England, in her 20th article, concedes to the Church a power to decree rites and ceremonies with this limitation alone upon its exercise that it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's written word. The principle of the discretionary power of the Church in regard to things not commanded by Christ in his word was the chief fountain from which flowed the gradually increasing tide of corruptions that swept the Latin Church into apostasy from the gospel of God's grace. And as surely as causes produce their appropriate effects and history repeats itself in obedience to that law, any Protestant church which embodies that principle in its creed is destined sooner or later to experience a similar fate. The same, too, may be affirmed of a church which formally rejects it and practically conforms to it. The reason is plain. The only bridle that checks the degenerating tendency of the church a tendency manifested in all ages, is the word of God. For the Spirit of grace himself ordinarily operates only in connection with that word. If this restraint be discarded, the downward lapse is sure. The words of the great theologian John Owen and the British Isles have produced no greater, are solemn and deserve to be seriously pondered. Quote, the principle that the Church hath power to institute anything or ceremony belonging to the worship of God, either as to matter or manner, beyond the observance of such circumstances as necessarily attend such ordinances as Christ himself hath instituted, lies at the bottom of all the horrible superstition and idolatry, of all the confusion, blood, persecution, and wars that have for so long a season spread themselves over the face of the Christian world, End quote. In view of such considerations as these, 
Confirmed as they are by the facts of all past history, it is easy to see how irrelevant and baseless is the taunt flung by high churchmen, ritualists, and latitudinarians of every stripe against the maintainers of the opposite principle, that they are narrow-minded bigots who take delight in insisting upon trivial details. The truth is exactly the other way. The principle on which this cheap ridicule is cast is simple, broad, majestic. It affirms only the things that God has commanded, the institutions and ordinances that he has prescribed, and besides this, discharges only a negative office which sweeps away every trifling invention of man's meretricious fancy. It is not the supporters of this principle, but their opponents who delight in insisting upon crossings, genuflections, and bowings to the east, upon vestments, altars, and candles, upon organs and cornets, and the dear antiphonies that so bewitch their prelates and their chapters with the goodly echo they make. In fine, upon all that finical trumpery which inherited from the woman clothed in scarlet marks the trend backward to the Rubicon and the seven-hilled mart of souls. But whatever others may think or do, Presbyterians cannot forsake this principle without the guilt of defection from their own venerable standards and from the testimony sealed by the blood of their fathers. Among the principles that the reformers extracted from the rubbish of corruption and held up to the light again, none were more comprehensive, far-reaching, and profoundly reforming than this. It struck at the root of every false doctrine and practice, and demanded the restoration of the truth. Germany has been infinitely the worst because of Luther's failure to apply it to the full. Calvin enforced it more fully. The great French Protestant Church, with the exception of retaining a liturgical relic of popery, gave it a grand application, and France suffered an irreparable loss when she dragooned almost out of existence the body that maintained it. John Knox stamped it upon the heart of the Scottish Church, and it constituted the glory of the English Puritans. Alas, that it is passing into decadence in the Presbyterian churches of England, Scotland, and America. What remains but that those who still see it and cling to it as something dearer than life itself should continue to utter, however feebly, however inoperatively, their unchanging testimony to its truth. It is the acropolis of the Church's liberties, the palladium of her purity. That gone, nothing will be left to hope but to strain its gaze toward the dawn of the millennial day. Then we are entitled to expect a more thoroughgoing and glorious reformation will be effected than any that has blessed the Church and the world since the magnificent propagation of Christianity by the labors of the inspired apostles themselves. Footnote. Gerardo. Instrumental Music. Pages 23-26. to 26. End footnote. So as not to leave myself open to the objection that little exegetical proof has been cited in this short newsletter format, I offer the following three considerations. First, it would be ridiculous to think that all, or even a slight percentage, of the testimonies herein adduced in favor of the regulative principle were reached on a basis other than intense scriptural exegesis. A close inspection of the sources cited in the footnotes will amply testify of the careful and precise exegetical work that has been done in this area. Second, the historical testimony should be regarded as coming from those who have held the highest regard for scripture. 
Many of the men holding to this position put their lives on the line over Scripture, while those opposing them often tried to mute their testimony with persecution and even death. Furthermore, this Presbyterian Puritan testimony for the regulative principle and against the use of musical instruments in public worship makes up the most totally unanimous historical witness I have come across in any contested area of theology, at least equal in clearness to that of the sovereignty of God in salvation, this being the sovereignty of God in worship. Third, in conjunction with all this, it is clear that many of the most abominable innovations in worship were introduced by Rome. The caveat that the reformers were merely reacting to Rome, per se, in upholding the regulative principle is simplistic at best. It is admitted that the earlier reformers were reacting, but righteously reacting against Rome's false and Judaizing hermeneutic. This hermeneutic drawing from the shadows figures and types of the abolished ceremony of the Old Testament, Hebrews 7-10, justified not only musical instruments in worship, but also the Mass, a false sacrifice a false priesthood, and any number of other detestable practices. Moreover, it implies that the work of Christ in fulfillment of these shadows and types is not satisfactory or complete. Rome's harlot hermeneutic, being as it is, radically opposed to sola scriptura, the great cry of the reformers and the reformation, necessitates an unbiblical deviation in worship. This is not surprising. What is surprising is that some of the Romanist innovations in worship such as instrumental music in public worship, are now being practiced by denominations that profess to hold to the Reformed faith, confessions, and hermeneutics. In conclusion, I will simply state that any reconstruction of the Church must begin with a thorough understanding and the subsequent practice of the regulative principle. To deviate here is to open the floodgates of humanistic innovation in worship, condoning worship devised by a false hermeneutic and therefore the will of man, Arminianism in worship, in short. This is the seedbed of idolatry and a sure route to a shipwrecked church. John Knox's battle to reform Scotland and his call for purity of worship is most instructive here. Knox states, The matter is not of so small importance as some suppose. The question is whether God or man ought to be obeyed in matters of religion. In mouth, all do confess that only God is worthy of, is worthy of sovereignty. But after many, by the instigation of the devil, and by the presumptuous arrogance of carnal wisdom and worldly policy, have defaced God's holy ordinance, men fear not to follow what laws and common consent, mother of all mischief, have established and commanded. But thus continually I can do nothing but hold and affirm all things polluted, yea, execrable and accursed, which God by his word has not sanctified in his religion. God grant you his Holy Spirit rightly to judge. Footnote. Knox. Works 6.14. Cited in John Knox, True and False Worship. Presbyterian Heritage Publications. Reprinted 1988. Page 10. End footnote. Will worship has proved disastrous in the past. Thus we must heed the warnings of history a history also filled with testimony to the clear biblically-based hermeneutic of our Presbyterian and Puritan forefathers, proclaiming the sovereignty of God in worship and over every area of life.
The following is an article taken from the March to June 1992 issue of Revival Review. The Psalms in Worship A series of convention papers bearing upon the place of the Psalms in the worship of the Church. Edited by John McNaughter, Classic Collectors Limited Edition. Reprinted from the 1907 edition. Apostolic Purity Few Christians are aware of the powerful influence that God's own songs, the Psalms, have exerted throughout history. They were used exclusively by the Lord Jesus Christ, His Apostles, and all of the earliest churches in their worship. Professor John Wilson, in his contribution to the 54 articles contained in the Psalms in Worship, hereafter known as PIW, entitled The Psalms in the Post-Apostolic Church, notes, in PIW, page 163, that, quote, there is absolutely not an iota of evidence that any other songs were used in worship in apostolic times, end quote. He continues by arguing that, quote, our practice of baptizing children we found chiefly on the fact that children were received into the Jewish church. We find the children in the church. The opponent of their admission must give a divine warrant for casting them out. Why does this argument not hold in the case of the Psalms? We find them in the Church, the divinely appointed songs of praise. Can less than a divine mandate warrant the substitution of other songs? End quote. This argument holds more weight than may at first appear. Most Reformed folk agree that every element of worship must be divinely instituted by the Word of God, which is commonly called the regulative principle or scriptural law of worship. Thus, any time we raise our voices to God in public worship without a clear mandate from God as to the content of the songs we are singing, we are offering strange fire. Now, all but the most ignorant are aware that there can be no neutrality in the things of the gospel. Either you are obeying Christ, or you are not. So, for those that adhere to a reformed view of the regulative principle, you either must sing psalms exclusively and confront your brothers in Christ that they are sinning by including man-made compositions in their worship song, doing something that is forbidden, sinning by commission, or they must sing their man-made compositions, thinking that God has instituted such, and admonish you that you are sinning by singing only psalms because you exclude sinning by omission, the divinely instituted man-made compositions in your public worship. Neutrality is impossible here, as God, by definition, cannot contradict himself by both instituting and not instituting man-made hymns at the same time. Moreover, a study of the lives of King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles 26, 16-21, Nadab and Abihu, Leviticus 10, 1-2, and numerous other biblical figures will reveal that such matters of worship are not to be taken lightly. But back to history for now. Professor Wilson, after noting that there is no indication of any change of the contents of worship song in the early church, continues, quote, The natural inference from the lack of protest against change in the form of praise service is further borne out by the total absence of post-apostolic hymns. In the times of persecution, search was made for the books of the Christians that they might be destroyed. The scriptures, and especially the Psalter, are always spoken of, but there is no reference to other hymns being sought or found. Dr. Farrar, in his Ecclesiastical Dictionary, says, 
It is remarkable that we have no hymns of the first and scarcely any of the second century, and we have no certain account of the authors of hymns before the middle of the fourth century. If hymns were composed and used during this period, it may well be called remarkable that not one has survived, and that the name of no writer of sacred melodies has found a place in the annals of the church. This is the more remarkable when we consider the voluminous quantity of other religious literature that has come down to us from the post-apostolic centuries. Can the absence of hymns from this literature be accounted for on any other theory than that they did not exist? PIW pages 164 and 165. End quote. I would take this one step further, remarking that it strains credibility to the utmost to think that if the Holy Spirit-inspired book of songs, the Psalms, was insufficient for public worship, that the Lord himself, or at least one of his apostles, did not see fit, under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to correct this deficiency by producing a new and inspired hymn book. Heretics and Hymns Furthermore, it is well known that the first and most prolific non-inspired hymn writers after the time of the Apostles were heretics, which arose in the early 3rd century, PIW pages 167 and 168. They were used by Satan to goad Christians into responding to their poison pens by composing hymns of their own. Quote, this led the conservators of the true teaching to seek to bring to bear a counter-influence by resort also to man-made songs. Herein was the first serious error. But it was a strong temptation, and their yielding should be regarded charitably. They thought the ark of God was about to be overthrown, and this act was the presumptuous putting forth of the hand, as alike, 2 Samuel 6, 6-7 to steady it. The motive was good, but how far-reaching and disastrous to the cause of purity of worship was the result of that zealous but unwise act. Sectarian hymns began to abound. The desire to emphasize many controverted points of doctrine led to the wide extension of the use of human hymns in the song service of the churches, so that in these present times the songs of men have come to take the place of the songs of God in by far the larger part of God's great family. End quote. States J. A. Thompson in The Suitable and Sufficiency of the Psalter for Christian Worship. PIW, page 191. Reformation and Revival Traversing the centuries in the times of growing Romish declension in worship, we come to a lengthy quotation from George Robinson's The Psalms in History section of our book, PIW, pages 510 to 511. Emphases added. Quote, now this prevalent use of the Psalms in Reformation times and in all the countries where the Reformed Church ultimately took root and flourished is in itself a very significant fact. The point, however, which I wish to emphasize is this that by reason of its general employment by the people, the Psalter became a powerful ally of the Reformation and an elect agent in the spread of its principles. These psalms, called by Luther Psalmni Paulini, because they were so full of Pauline doctrine, universally sung as they were by all classes, preached the great essential truths of the Bible, which were also the Reformation truths, more rapidly, more widely, and more effectively than would have been possible by a great army of Re Reformation apostles. They crept into the highways and byways of the people, 
stole into kingly courts and royal chambers and thus touched with their illuminating truths those of high and low degree who would have been wholly inaccessible to preacher or evangelist. The song made ready the highway for the doctrine. So when Calvinism swept from Geneva and began to make its way into France, in, in the Netherlands, in England and Scotland, and Lutheranism in like manner began to spread over Germany and the countries to the north, both traveled over this song-made highway into the hearts and consciences of men. Through familiarity with the Psalms, unexpected multitudes were found already infected or so favorably disposed that the truth gained easy entry to the citadel of their minds. To the extent to which the sacred Psalter spread throughout Europe, to that extent the Reformation prospered. The singing of the Psalms continued to be the general practice of the Reformed churches until well into the 18th century, when the hymns began to be introduced, and in time practically superseded them in most of these churches. Although many churches holding the Westminster standards have departed from the general use of the Psalter in their praise, the assembly knew nothing else and made provision for nothing else. End quote. It is sad but revealing to note that those who played a large part in introducing man-made songs into the Presbyterian churches were, as in the earlier centuries, those that held to very aberrant if not outright heretical doctrinal views. For instance, Isaac Watts, the major innovator whose songs are now known among psalm singers as Watts' whims, was seriously deficient in his view of the Trinity. His published views regarding the Trinity found in his works, Volume 7, pages 476-477, to Leeds edition, would place him closer to the Unitarian camp than to the Scripture. Footnote I will not reproduce his words here, but I would be happy to send a copy of Watts' statement to those that request it from Stillwater's Revival Books. End footnote. Another interesting note reproduced by Michael Bushell in his stellar work on exclusive psalmody, The Songs of Zion, page 143, speaks particularly of the power of psalm singing in France. Quote, the popularity of the Psalter became such a problem that as early as 1550 the ecclesiastical court of La Rochelle prohibited the importation of the Geneva Psalter. Eventually, sterner measures were taken by the Catholic hierarchy to curtail the effect of vernacular psalm singing. A series of laws prohibited the singing of psalms in streets and shops, 1623, at executions, 1657, and anywhere outside Protestant places of worship, 1658. In 1659, the private singing of psalms was prohibited, if audible, outside, and in 1661, the singing of psalms anywhere in French territory became a felony. End quote. Why a history lesson? I do not imagine that a short sketch of history such as that given above will convince anyone in and of itself of the position held by exclusive psalm singers. But I do hope that it will awaken the spirit of reformed Christians to the glorious heritage of singing the inspired words of God that is theirs. A heritage practiced by our Lord and his apostles but uncommon to most contemporary Christians. I am also hoping that the knowledge of the old paths will draw the beloved of the Lord away from truncated, emotionalistic, unregulated views of worship. 
Personally, after having spent numerous years in hymn-singing congregations, but for the last couple of years, tasting of the meat of God's glorious word in song, I can only liken the human compositions of men as milk in comparison to the Psalms, and humanistically soured milk at that. Why the Psalms in Worship? There are many reasons for our republication of the Psalms in Worship. This book was called the most comprehensive treatment of the subject to be found anywhere by, Do- by Dr. David Freeman, who graduated from the old Princeton before Westminster Seminary was founded, went on to earn a Ph.D. from Dropsy College for Hebrew and Cognate Learning, and was one of the founding ministers of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church in 1936, and was also Professor John Murray's pastor in Philadelphia for many years. It is my hope that this book may play a small part in scattering the darkness surrounding this subject while promoting a return of the churches of Christ to their apostolic purity regarding worship song. The Editor's Overview The editor of this massive volume, just about 600 pages, John McNaughter, gives a useful summary of the contents and context of this printing in the preface. Quote, Under the direction of the General Assembly of the United Presbyterian Church of North America, two conventions were held in the autumn of 1905, the first in Pittsburgh and the second in Chicago, to promote the claims of the Psalms in the field of worship. The material of the present volume consists of the papers read at what were large and representative gatherings. Inasmuch as the same list of subjects was adopted for both meetings, each theme has two treatments. For the most part, these related papers are mutually supplemental. The volume covers the ground indicated by its title, building upon the scriptural principle of divine appointment as set forth in the Westminster Standards. It contains a comprehensive statement of the reasons for the exclusive use in worship of the Bible Psalms. Definitely argumentative discussions of a doctrinal and critical kind are in the forefront. Others of broader type succeed. These latter range along historical, literary, and practical lines, and in their own way make effective contribution to the strength of the position maintained. In providing for the publication of these convention addresses, the General Assembly had more in mind than a denominational interest. There was the further purpose to submit them to the serious consideration of the Christian Church at large. The Psalter, composed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is the common possession of the whole family of God, its ordained manual of praise. It is the oldest hymn book in existence, having a connected record through thousands of years down to our own times, and it is consecrated forever as having been the hymnody of our Savior and of the Apostolic Church. In the light of its age-long history, of its rich poetry, of its unsectarian Catholic character, of its freedom from error, of its well-proportioned character, of its theological depth and spiritual quality, of its wealth of evangelical matter, of its supremacy in the utterance of devotion and religious experience, and of the unexampled strains in which it celebrates the glories of God, there is ample occasion for the plea that the churches of Christ recognize in the Psalter their heritage of sacred song as against the human hymnody with its necessary imperfections. 
that he who inhabits the praises of Israel may be pleased to make use of this volume in restoring the Psalms to their true place in the hearts and on the lips of Christian believers is the prayer of the Assembly's Convention Committee. End quote. Topics dealt with in this volume are as follows. The idea of worship, the scriptural law of worship, the singing of praise, a duty, the Psalms, the divinely authorized and exclusive manual of praise, the Psalms in the Old Testament Church, the Psalms in the New Testament Church, a special exegesis of Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19, the Psalms in the Post-Apostolic Church, the suitableness and sufficiency of the Psalter for Christian worship, the theism of the Psalter, Christ in the Psalms, the devotional value of the Psalter, the doctrinal completeness of the Psalter, the ethics of the psalms, the imprecatory psalms, the psalms and evangelistic work, the psalms and missions, the psalms and the young, the literary excellence of the psalms, the catholicity of the psalter, the importance of an exclusive use of the psalms in present-day apologetics, psalm versification, the musical interpretation of the psalms, Objections to the exclusive use of the psalms in worship. Specimens of eulogies on the psalms. The psalms in history. The status and outlook of the cause of psalmody. God's curse on unbelief. Bill Marshall in the introduction to the 1992 edition, PIW page 1, perceptively points out that, quote, what is urgent for us today is not simply to return to the divinely inspired hymn book of the Bible for our worship, needful as that is. It is to return to the, re- to, re- to the religion and idea of worship inherent in the Psalms. The great need of our day is to turn to the religion of the Psalms to sense their appropriateness, away from the self-pleasing tenor of, the, of modern evangelicalism and liberalism, with its disjunction between the Old and New Testaments to this theocentric religion of the scripture with its steady emphasis on the majesty of the incomprehensible God and the Psalms' messianic perspective of Christ reigning over the nations to put down his and our enemies to beautify God's city, the church, and to gather all nations unto it. End quote. The imprecatory Psalms fall under special condemnation from those out of tune with the Holy Spirit. Quote, imprecations abound in the book of Psalms. These Psalms have been under an awful fire of criticism, some even going so far in revising and compiling the Psalter for modern day use as to drop the imprecatory Psalms from their collection. That the Psalms have been under a heavy fire of criticism is a fact familiar to anyone who has given attention to the trend of religious thought. But to show the injustice of adverse and bitter criticism, and to do honor to the Holy Spirit, we say that the Psalms are altogether pitched on the key of Bible morality. They express the mind of the Holy Spirit, which is always the same, and they express the emotions of the human soul that is in sympathy with the law and purpose of the righteous and holy God. Any argument that wars against the divine inspiration of the Psalms that we are considering wars against the whole book of Psalms, they stand or fall together. 
The believer in inspiration will not therefore be guilty of the irreverence and profanity of floating these psalms. For that which is said and done against them is said and done against the Holy Spirit, and who will dare to risk having such a charge lodged against him? End quote. J.A. Reed, The Imprecatory Psalms, P.I.W., page 312. Clearly, the carnal mind does not comprehend God's perfect hatred of sin as found in these psalms, but I have even seen God's own children come under chastisement for opposing Christ in the Imprecatory Psalms in particular, and for opposing exclusive psalmody in general. One Road to True Unity as is well known to those who enter the psalmody debate, this issue has a tendency to divide Christians. I can unequivocally state that my intention in republishing the psalms in worship is precisely the opposite. In fact, though there will be those offended by what they perceive as the strictness of God's will in this matter, the singing of psalms exclusively in worship affords the only true hope of fulfilling our Lord's words concerning biblical unity in worship. That they, may, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. John 17:21. Quote, Notice that this altar belongs exclusively to no one sect or denomination of the church. It is as broad as the whole church, and equally well adapted to each and every part of the church in the matter of praise. It must, be that to, it must be that to be Catholic or universal. If the Psalter admits of the charge of narrowness or sectarianism, if its point of view is at any distinct angle of vision, if its songs have in them a suggestion of denominational bias, then the Psalter fails evidently in its Catholicity. But does it fail? We assert that it does not. We believe not only that there is no truth that should find a place upon the lips of the adoring worshipper of whatsoever denominational creed that is not found in it, but that the truths it contains are the truths upon which evangelical Christendom is and ever has been agreed. It is the supreme advantage of the psalm singer that his songs are from God, and that therefore they embody the truth of God, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. On the other hand, it must ever remain the embarrassment of those who use uninspired compositions in the praise of God, that their hymns are at best but human compositions of the truth. Such compositions bear upon them necessarily the impress of the writer's peculiar views. They betray almost certainly in letter as in spirit a denominational bias. Uninspired hymns are, and of necessity must be, sectarian. If this be true, it follows that such hymns are subversive of the unity of the faith. For by all the power of song to stir the heart and mold the thought and make theology, they accentuate and perpetuate the differences that divide the church. There is something truly anomalous in a church preaching the unity of believers and praying the prayer of Christ that all may be one, and at the same time singing the songs that by their sectarian bias and denominationalism foster the divisions thus deplored. End quote. Writes C. H. Robinson, The Catholicity of the Psalter, PIW, page 394-395. Conclusion 
Though there is a multitude of material I would like to cover here, I am forced by space limitations to conclude with the following words of encouragement to those who continue to soldier on in the battle for the Psalms in worship. Quote, Guided by scripture in our look heavenward, we have good reason to believe that the principle for which we stand will one day be recognized by all that serve God. Some years ago, a member of one of our Ohio congregations visited in Scotland. Although weird in a hymn-singing church, she had come to be in such sympathy with our position on psalmody that she kept silence during the singing of hymns in the church of her relatives. Her silence was noted and resented by her companion. When you psalm singers get to heaven, said the critic, will you get off in some corner by yourselves and keep quiet while all heaven is ringing with praises of the redeemed? The reply was worthy of the theologian. When we get to heaven, we will do there what we are doing here. We will sing whatever God appoints to be sung. End quote. S. E. Martin, The Status and Outlook of the Cause of Psalmody, P.I.W., page 544. A One-of-A-Kind Challenge This book is a one-of-a-kind publication of limited quantity, the only full-length, almost 600 pages, defense of exclusive psalmody in existence today though Crown and Covenant will be releasing a second edition of Michael Bushell's Songs of Zion sometime this summer. There is nothing else like it available today. Combined with the Songs of Zion, the case for exclusive psalmody remains unanswered and unanswerable. Until a response of equal length and cogency appears, this will remain so. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-450, 3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.